Well, next comes a, uh, a talk about some of the weaponry that us crusaders that Clyde is talking about are going to be able to, to have some increased armament. We're going to hear from a man that a lot of us are not really acquainted with, maybe have not met, but for the first time this trip. He's been on our staff for a long, long time. And we're very pleased to have him here tonight to give this speech. He's a graduate of Boston College. After one year at Boston College's law school, he acceded to a request from a man named Robert Welch to join the staff of this young John Birch Society. He did so in 1960 and has remained with our organization since. He likes to tell about the reaction he received because it was a peculiar dean of law at the Austin College. And when he went to tell this man that he would not be returning, the dean being a Reverend Robert Drynan, he, Robert Drynan politely inquired as to Jim's reasons why he was leaving his law studies. Now, Father Drynan, as you may know, did not like the John Birch Society. He did not like the values that the John Birch Society has. And so when he said he was going to work for this man, Robert Welch, at the Birch Society, Jim says he erupted, and when he came down, he spent quite a bit of time trying to dissuade him from making this terrible course that he had chosen. Well, Jim retained, remained on his course, and he served as director of research for the JBS for many years, and then he, he was a news editor for the Review of the News, where he not only summarized weekly events, he did the sports and profile columns. Since its founding in 1985, he served as senior editor of the New American. He carefully researched a lot of articles, and they've greatly contributed to our overall effort. He's been a summer camp speaker in recent years. He's uh, been known to bring several of, at best count, nine children to some of our summer camps. He's just completed work on a book that we're all anxiously awaiting. And this book, as I've gotten in the last few years to learn a little more about books and their use in our fight, I have, as Clyde has, a, a feeling that this book could be one of the best answers we've ever come up with to exposing the conspiracy. Robert Welch used to talk about some books like Nundir Kala Conspiracy being a glancing blow and, and to wake up people, to get their attention. I see that in this book, and I also see a lot more because I think it could put the chink and then the, and then the, and then the hole and then the wedge in, into the armor of the conspiracy. The subject of the book and his remarks tonight is President George Bush and the book is The Establishment's Man. He's here tonight with his wife, Terry. We're very pleased to have here to give us this talk, Mr. James J. Jim Drummy. I don't know if I'd like to hear somebody say that the shorter the speech, the better. Mr. Lewis and I were discussing how long our speeches would be. And I decided that mine would be a little bit longer than his, so I hope it's going to be as good, but I don't know. We'll have to try it and see. I'm delighted to be here tonight to speak before this very distinguished group. Having been with the staff of the Society for 30 years, I want to tell you that this is a great experience. We have an enthusiasm now that I have not seen since the 1960s. 
And a meeting such as this, conference such as this, can only increase that enthusiasm. There's nothing better for morale than for people to get together from various parts of the country and to share ideas and get new insights. And it, I think it fires you up to go back and to carry out the important mission of the John Birch Society. So I want you to know that I am delighted to be part of this. We have indeed created, as the program said, a new national presence. And it's high time that we did so, and I think we're going to be very, very successful as the years go by. You may not be aware of it, but when the choice of speakers for tonight's program was being discussed, it came down to a choice between Jack McManus and me. And because uh, Alan could not decide, it was decided to give each of us a quiz, a three-question quiz. <laughs> and the person who did better on the quiz would be the speaker. Well, we flipped a coin, and Jack went first. And Alan said, Jack, I have three questions for you. The first one is, how many days of the week begin with the letter T? And Jack said, that's easy today, and tomorrow. <laughs> Alan said, well, that's not quite what I had in mind. Let's try the second question. How many seconds are there in a year? Jack thought for a minute, and he said, 12. And Alan said, how do you figure that? And Jack said, January 2nd, February 2nd. <laughs> Alan said, okay, Jack, I'm going to give you one more chance. How many D's are there in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Well, Jack thought and thought and counted on his fingers. And he said, 36. And Alan said, where did you get that number? And Jack said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> So that's why I'm your speaker tonight. <laughs> there was a discussion at our table about the program, because it says in the program, the establishment's man, James J. Drummy. <laughs> and so there was a question whether I'm to speak about the establishment's man, or whether I am the establishment's man. Now, Clyde Lewis said he would give me the benefit of the doubt but some of the others weren't so sure. People have asked me, what is it like to write a book? Is it difficult? And I say, well, yes and no. If you've done a lot of writing, the writing's not very difficult. What is difficult is the research. A lot of time and a lot of effort goes into writing. 
I don't know about other writers, but I find in my own experience that perhaps 80% of my time is spent on reading and research, and 20% on writing. I was at a wake a couple of weeks ago for the wife of Dr. Francis X. Gannon, Dr. Gannon's wife now, not Dr. Gannon himself. And longtime Birches will remember Dr. Gannon and the great contributions that he made to the John Birch Society, his authorship of the Biographical Dictionary of the Left. And I had the privilege of working very closely with him for 13 years. And I learned a great deal from him. And one thing that he stressed over and over again was the importance of careful and scholarly research so that you don't get burned when you write something. And so that is a standard that I have tried to adhere to for the 25 years that I have been writing for the Society's magazines. So a great deal of time and research went into writing this book. And some of the research is very tedious. Sometimes it's interesting when you come across a fact that you hadn't heard before, or you run across something you'd forgotten about, but most of it is very tedious. You have to read a lot of news conferences and speeches. Now you see a speech by George Bush takes up an entire page in the New York Times. It takes some time to read that speech. And you might only use one sentence out of that entire speech, but you have to read the whole speech. And you have to read certain books, and you have to read certain documents. So there's a lot of research that goes into writing something, much of the research you never even use, but it takes a considerable amount of time to do that research. One of the most difficult things, um, some of you may be familiar with the publication Facts on File. It's a, it comes out every couple of weeks with the news events, important news stories. And at the end of the year, they put together a volume, a, a loose-leaf volume, which is probably about this thick. And so I went through 22 years of facts on file. You have an index at the back, and you look up George Bush, and then you flip to the page. Then you go back to the index, and you flip to the page, and you go back to the index. Now, in the 60s and 70s, there weren't a lot of references to him. But of course, in the 1980s, there were. And for a period of two and a half or three weeks, I went to my library every morning at 9 o'clock, and I sat there for four or five hours going through facts on file. I, I couldn't do more than four or five hours. It was a brutal, brutal thing. You know, you find the references and you take the notes on it. So I'm just trying to indicate to you that the most difficult part really is doing the research. Now, once you get the research done, then the question is, how do you organize this research? You know many of the facts that are going to be, that are in the book. A lot of it is familiar to you. But how do you arrange it? What's the best way to organize it? What should you emphasize? You know, these are all questions that we had to talk about. And I want to, by the way, I, I told a little joke on Jack McManus, but I want to thank Jack very much for all the help that he gave me, all the advice, the editorial suggestions. He was a great deal of help to me in preparing this book, and I want to thank him publicly for that. One possibility in writing this book was to do everything chronologically. But everybody does it that way. 
And I thought we might try something a little different. We might take various topics or issues that have been an important part of George Bush's life and put them all together in one chapter. For example, over the last 20 years, George Bush has been involved with Red China on three specific occasions. In the early 1970s as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, in the mid-70s as the United States Envoy in what was then called Peking, and in the last year or so in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And it seemed to me that it might be good if we put all of that information about his dealings with the Chinese Communists in one chapter. So instead of having it spread out in various parts of the book, it would all be in one place for easy reference. And the same thing was done with George Bush's dealings with Gorbachev and with his connections with the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. So the book is arranged in that fashion so that you can go to a particular chapter and find a lot of information about a certain aspect of the president's public career. Then there was the question, how do you arrange the chapters? And there was a lot of discussion about this. Do you start right off with the chapters about the Trilateral Commission and the CFR? My feeling was that this book is aimed not at members of the Birch Society who know what's going on, but rather at people who don't know what's going on, or who think, or know there's something wrong and aren't quite sure what it is. So it was my feeling that we kind of ease into this and let the book build as it goes along. We don't want to, people that don't really understand what's going on, you don't want to bury them with, with the, the real hard stuff, I didn't think, right in the first chapter. And so that was the way that the book was arranged. So I thought you might be interested in knowing that. Now what are some of the things that were talked about in the book? I'm not going to discuss a lot of them. You might not want to buy the book then. <laughs> George Bush has claimed to be a conservative. And you find a lot of references to him as a conservative. You and I, of course, know better. You and I know that a true conservative is interested in reducing the size and the reach of government. But George Bush is interested in expanding the size and the reach of government. So George Bush is no conservative. You and I know that a genuine conservative is interested in cutting spending and taxes. But George Bush believes in increasing spending and raising taxes. So George Bush is no conservative. A true conservative believes in preserving and expanding freedom. But what has George Bush done to preserve and expand freedom? He has helped the enemies of freedom. He has sent American forces into the Persian Gulf. George Bush is no conservative. A true conservative views communist regimes as the enemy and is against aid and trade with them or the signing of treaties and agreements. But George Bush believes in helping our communist enemies. 
And even though he sent to Congress last February a report indicating that the Soviet Union has repeatedly violated every arms control agreement that we have signed with them, nevertheless he has since that time signed or agreed to sign more arms control agreements. George Bush is no conservative. A conservative views the United Nations as a vehicle to bring about the surrender of our sovereignty. And you have seen in recent months what George Bush has been saying about how wonderful the United Nations is. George Bush is no conservative. A conservative sees the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission as harmful to America. But George Bush has been a member of both of these organizations. And if they were just the bland study groups that their proponents claim, then why did he feel it necessary to resign from both of those organizations just before he ran for president in 1980? George Bush is no conservative. A conservative recognizes the dangers to American freedom and American sovereignty in the New World Order. As the introduction to the bulletin, Jack McManus's introduction to the November bulletin says the New World Order is just another term for world government. Conservatives do not favor world government. George Bush has talked about how important it is for us to be involved in a sovereignty compromising new world order. George Bush is no conservative. Last weekend, last Sunday, I took part in a walk for life in Boston. And there were over 20,000 people who marched through the streets of Boston in the defense of life. And as we were walking along, there were various statues of famous people. And one of the statues that caught my attention was that of Edward Everett Hale. He was a minister who lived in Boston in the last century. And he was the author of a work of fiction, a brief work of fiction, called The Man Without a Country. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's a fascinating story. It's about a naval officer named Philip Nolan, who in the early 1800s conspired with Aaron Burr to overthrow the government of the United States. The conspiracy was exposed and Philip Nolan was arrested and court-martialed. Just before the judge was to pronounce sentence on him, he said, Mr. Nolan, do you have any words that you'd like to say about your terrible act of treason against the United States. And Nolan said, damn the United States. I hope I never hear those words again. The judge was so shocked by Nolan's outburst that he called for a brief recess. And when the court-martial was convened again, the judge said, Mr. Nolan, you are going to be granted 
your wish never to hear the name of the United States again. Beginning tomorrow, you will be put on a ship leaving the port of New Orleans, and you will never again set foot on American soil. You will be transferred from one ship to another. Your reading matter will be censored so that you never see the words United States of America. Anyone who speaks to you will be forbidden to speak to you of what is happening in this country. And the sentence was imposed, and Nolan was put on that ship the next day. Several years later, while the ship was off the coast of North Africa, Philip Nolan and some of the members of the crew were sitting on board one day taking turns reading from a book of poetry. And when the book was handed to Philip Nolan, he began reading from Sir Walter Scott's Lay of the Last Minstrel. Breathes there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. And Nolan choked a little bit when he spoke those words. And the members of the crew were very still. They, they were holding their breaths. Whose heart has near within him burned, as homeward bound his footsteps turned from wandering on a foreign strand. And Nolan could go no further. He jumped to his feet, he threw the book over the side of the ship, and he ran to his stateroom and did not emerge from that stateroom for several weeks. I'm not going to tell you any more about the story. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's a fascinating story. But I tell it to you to make the point that Philip Nolan lacked that love of country that members of the John Birch Society take so seriously. We will never turn our backs on our native land. We love this country. We love the freedom we have in this country. And there is nothing we will not do to preserve and defend that freedom. <laughs> Education is our total strategy and truth is our only weapon. And over 32 years, we have adhered to that strategy, and we have used that weapon. And we have used both of those things very well in the past year. The educational campaigns about Earth Day, about the visit of Gorbachev, about the visit of Nelson Mandela, about the Mideast masquerade, all of these things have had a tremendous influence on the American people. As I said at the beginning, I don't think there's been a time in many years when people are as receptive or are as likely to listen to our message as today. And we have to concentrate on educating those people and providing them with the truth. And it is my sincere hope that this book the establishment's man will help in that great crusade in which we have engaged. It was a joy writing that book, pulling all of this information together, and I hope it will become a valuable weapon in our 
crusade to wake the town and tell the people. And whatever you can do in that crusade will be appreciated not only by your fellow citizens, but by generations yet unborn. Thank you very much. As we say a lot of the time, timing is everything. And the recent uh, poll published this week shows George Bush's popularity is dipping to an all-time low for him, some 55%. That book could take it to 5% and expose a conspiracy. Thank you very much. <laughs>